Doc Ryan, Expedition 44, here with my good friend Matt again. We are continuing our study on the book of Colossians, and we are grounded in chapter 3. We did our class last night, and so today we're going to kind of give a little bit of a recap to that. Matt, we start out in chapter 3. Where are we at? Um, so Paul begins chapter 3 with a therefore. So whenever we see therefore in the Bible, we gotta Paul's connecting things, so we got to ask what's it there for. Yep. So what we just got through is Paul explaining some pretty deep theology, and this is pretty typical of Paul's letters yep. where he transitions from um, kind of theology into application. Yeah. And so we're, we're kind of switching gears here, and that's what the therefore is there in Colossians 3, verse 1. So we see that Jesus is higher and more superior than all of these spiritual beings that are kind of being worshipped in this yep. Colossian community. He kind of took two chapters here to combat kind of this heresy, and now he's telling the church, right, as a result of Jesus being higher and more supreme and all of this, and the only way, yeah. um, there's no other way except for him, this is how we live. Yep. So that's what we're okay. getting into. So he starts off with kind of what we call in theology is this already not yet mindset. Mm -hmm. Explain that a little bit. Yeah, so the already not yet, it's kind of, um, he speaks as Christ's kingdom and what Jesus did when he came and died on the cross and resurrected and ascended is his kingdom is present. Yeah. But it hasn't reached its ultimate climax. Yeah. So. And throughout the Bible, this is a common thing that we keep asking. Mm -hmm. You know, has this already happened or yeah. is it not yet? And, you know, I kind of have a pet peeve. I've, I've mentioned this in other videos where you see sometimes in the Old Testament, it says things and it's kind of written prophetically, but then Christ fulfilled a lot of those things in yeah. the Old Testament. Yet today, it's like we still sing songs asking these things to happen when mm -hmm. it's already happened. And so what this kind of says to us is we kind of have to keep keep record on these things of, of what it's speaking to and where it's where it's talking about. Mm -hmm. Has this happened or is it in future? And so this is a question we often ask, particularly in Paul's writing, is where are we at in this? Yeah. So we see right at the beginning of Colossians chapter 3 that Paul is setting up this already, not yet, with Jesus being at the right hand of God. It depicts a rule that is current. Yeah. And so he, he says a bunch of things. We talked about different Greek tenses in the past few videos. The aorist tense is the snapshot, the already completed thing. So we have, you've been raised with Christ, which is an aorist tense. Yep. We have, you have died, which is an aorist tense. And then we have, your life has been hidden with Christ, which is a perfect tense, which we see because these things have completed yeah. in the past is the perfect tense in the the results of it keep going on into the future. There's no yeah. real end point. It just keeps going. Now, I know enough Greek to be dangerous, but I don't consider myself an expert here. I'm really a Hebrew guy, and mm -hmm. Hebrew is kind of all over the place. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to understand the culture. You have to understand yeah. the difference between ancient or what time frame it's yeah. set in. I mean, there were no punctuation in the early stuff, so yeah, you're trying to build that into it. Yeah. Greek is different. Yeah, Greek is very precise. You yeah. know exactly what's going on. <laughs> and what's even more interesting about that is, had we been reading Colossians in Greek, we wouldn't be asking a lot of these already not yet questions because it just... It, it's there. It reads that way. Mm -hmm. Where in English, people don't get that. So they're trying to figure this out. And, mm -hmm. and in Greek, it just it's almost... I don't want to say it's a different story, but there's not as many questions because mm -hmm. the language explains yeah, it. Yeah, it's slightly different than English as we have like past, present, future, where Greek is more about location yeah, in that. Yeah. So when things took place in, in a location rather than uh, chronologically. Yeah. So when we when we explain the tenses here and, and that kind of thing, we're just kind of cueing you into the passage and where it's going and what it's saying. Mm -hmm. So Paul basically says, since you have been raised, you've died, your life is hidden, and he's essentially saying you're a new creation. Yeah. That's what he's taking here. And so that moves into basically your old life is dead, and 
these this is these thoughts um the list that he comes up with after this is how you should be renewing your mind considering yourself now that you're rooted in christ this is the way that you need to live and you need to think about those things and live in it day by day by day by day so he goes and kind of gives us this imperative list and a lot of times Mm -hmm. when we read the bible we kind of say why don't they just tell us the way it is and he just tells us the way it is here it is so the first 17 (laughs) verses we got a whole bunch of imperatives so verse one seek the things above verse two set your minds on the things of above and not on the things of earth in verse 5, it says, put to death, basically, the earthly stuff in you. In verse 8, it says, now you must, he gives a list, you must put all these things away, the old order of things. Anger, wrath, yeah. malice, slander, yep. yeah. Yeah, verse 9, don't lie to one another. Yep. Um, verse 12, put on, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, and humility. Um, yeah, let the peace of Christ rule within you. In yep. verse 15, be thankful. Yes. Also, in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell within you. And we could spend a lot of time on each one of yeah. those, but I just, this is so nice how it's just laid yeah. out like there. Now do it. Now yeah. go to it. Yeah. Action words. Yeah, he gives all these actions, all these commands of yeah. this is the stuff you got to do to renew your mind, to um, basically act like you're a new creation because yep. you are. Yep. Now we continue with this new creation and it's kind of old clothes, new clothes. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So he's basically, now that you're a new creation, you've put on Christ. So kind of act like it. So yeah. he gives what's called in kind of scholarly language, they call them viceless and virtueless. Yep. So there's, um, and we see this also a lot in the ancient world. Um, yep. Even in Greco-Roman writings, they had these viceless versus virtueless yep. that they pinned kind of off of each other. So, And a lot of people make correlations to the Torah going back there because it does it uses a lot of similar devices mm-hmm. going through there. Yeah. So what in this part, basically 12 through 17 in Colossians 3, we have actual problems that they're dealing with in the yeah. Colossian community. These aren't just some abstract yeah. things. He's getting practical with them. Yep. So we have in verse 5, it focuses on sexual sins there. Um, and then in verse 8, it talks about interpersonal relationships. Yeah. And so it kind of works from stuff that's outside of people into the most inner core. Yeah. It talks about idolatry, like we talked about last week, yep. kind of being the heart of it. Covetedness, yep. or, um, is, what he says, is idolatry is kind of where he gets to the core of the issue. Yes, exactly. And so we talked about that a little bit in our works contract video, yep. is idolatry kind of being the, the disease, which yeah. sin is, um, these sins are the, the symptoms of yep. the disease. Absolutely. So he kind of gets at the core of that right there. So... And there's another thing to look at here in Colossians. It's important to kind of take what the book is specifically writing to. The culture, the people, what are they going through? But then what we have is kind of a literary means of saying this is also written to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. And so at what point do we kind of differentiate what's going to Colossae and what's to the rest of the world? And so to do that, we cross-reference some of these themes with Paul's other writings. And when mm-hmm. you see him double up... That means that it's a world theme. Now, today, this kind of gets lost because what he's writing to Colossae, even though some of these are very specific there, it's like this this problem has really broadened. And today, where we would have separated yeah, we, these things, it's applicable very much to where we're at Yeah, right we now. deal with the same things in our present All the day time. and age. Yeah. So, yeah. Kind of gives you a little history. We want, to, we want to learn from history, and it kind of shows you that throughout 2,000 years, things have really kind of continued this downward spiral of the mess we have made the world. Yeah, I mean, humans are still sinful, and we still need Jesus to make us right. All right. Let the peace of Christ be in our hearts. So this is a widely misinterpreted verse. A lot of Christians will take this to mean basically seeking God and decision-making and that, which which is good. We should be doing that. But Ryan, is that really what the verse says? You know, it's tough. There's there's a lot of these verses that are speaking within their context to very immediate situations. And 
what one of our pet peeves is, is when somebody pulls that singular verse and they apply it to themselves or to any situation that they're in, mm-hmm. as if it should give life to it, when actually what, the, what they're trying to apply it to is very much outside of the realm that it was yeah. written in. And so when you look at this specifically, Paul kind of starts in the very first part of Colossians 3 where these are personal things. He's mm-hmm. saying, do this, do this, but then he shift gears and, you know, this is communal. It mm-hmm. kind of gets to a bigger picture of, let's say, a church, you know, church in this again goes back to a lot of Old Testament thinking and that's where Paul is doing this is he's contrasting here's for personal here's for the larger spectrum of this so when we when we read this we're kind of getting a different idea of the body of Christ that way yeah it's about communal living and living together in unity as not just as individuals but as as a corporate fellowship yeah in a lot of the the writings here you, you can see this when it uses the word hearts instead of heart that's just mm-hmm. kind of a key off that this yeah. isn't talking about my personal heart there's mm-hmm. something bigger than that so that's just a little question but again in the greek it's actually significantly more clear i would say yeah and the when it says let it dwell in your heart uh, i believe i don't have my greek in front of me but i believe it's plural it's like yeah. more like y'all yeah. instead of so it's the plural of, yep. of you so yep. exactly so which means more than just one person yep so. Perfect. In my the NASB actually uses an S. Does it? They pluralize it, so that's a good rendition of that scripture. Yeah. Yeah. So when it talks about rule there, like peace, or we talk, actually peace probably isn't the best um, translation of that. Though a lot of them do translate that word peace there in verses fifteen and sixteen. Um, it's the same in Greek. What would be equivalent to shalom yeah. in, in Hebrew, which wholeness, wholeness or oneness yeah. with God. So. And let it rule in your heart. So that's kind of, yeah. but that's um, a sports analogy. And Paul uses lots of sports analogies. So it's kind of like yeah. saying, hey, let, let the shalom of God be basically the umpire of, of the your hearts heart, of your yeah. community. And it's, it's a reference to the Holy Spirit also continually mm-hmm. speaking to you, but also being open. I mean, I, I'm truly a believer the Holy Spirit is constantly tweaking us, yet are we mm-hmm. listening? Are we, are we letting that action bring us back into the submission of the Christ head here. Yeah, and and a big thing that I, that was brought up in class is that we we try to do a lot of this sometimes on our own power. Yep. But a lot of these words here are in the passive form. What does which that mean? W- this in is the, cool. In the passive form means it's something being done to us, yeah. not something that we're doing ourselves. So we walk in step with the Spirit and these things yeah. will happen. So, so we're kind of reading this thinking, oh man, how am I going to do, do all, all this? this? Yet the language says it for us. It yeah. says it's already done. Christ uh-huh. is working in you. Yep. He's doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. So when we get down to verse 16, um, we have one of the imperatives we talked about, let the word of Christ dwell richly within yeah. you. And then it tells us how to do that. It's talking about a mental transformation but we do this by through teaching through exhortation and through yep. singing and saying to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual yep. songs so being a worship leader it's really important that our music teaches truth and teaches yes. the teachings of Jesus yep. um, because we're supposed to we we're commanded to sing these things together and to each other yeah. um, to exhort to push each other forward in our discipleship but also to teach us to live as Jesus wants us to live in the whole way that this is steering this is to transform our minds this way mm-hmm. and we miss this. I don't know yeah. how we go through this whole thing. And, you know, Paul goes through it and he says, mm-hmm. we need to be working on our minds so that we just mm-hmm. think this way. Yeah, and we always talk about sanctification as a journey. Yeah. So it's a, something that we do day by day by day. And when we yeah. have the songs, what we put into ourselves is so important to um, what we listen to is so important to our, our sanctification yes. and, and that process of walking with Jesus and becoming more like him, yep, being exactly. conformed to the image of Christ. Love it. Light bearers. Yep. All right. So now we kind of transition into household codes. And if I was just reading this and I didn't know anything about the Old Testament, New Testament, and even Bible, I might miss this part. So can you kind of explain 
what the household codes were. Yeah, so in the Greco-Roman society, they believed, and you can read this in Aristotle, even in Josephus, who is a yep. Jew, yeah. um, uh, he's a Hellenized Jew, but you saw that um, in the empire, the kind of the nucleus of it, they thought was the household. Yeah. So order in the household reflected order in the empire. So yep. if you didn't have order within your house, then it's the empire falling apart, technically yeah. is the way that they saw it. So what Paul does is he kind of takes these household codes that were always addressed to males because they had males as the the head of head of the home. It was a patriarchal society. Yeah. And so they'd address how to how to deal with or have order with your wife and your slaves and your children and how all that reflected the order of the empire. Now he's still kind of taking a little bit of that same language of how they would speak because mm -hmm. it appears that he's mostly speaking to men here, although the audience would be women as mm -hmm. well. But at the same time, he's, he's within this framework, yet it's radically different. It is. Because in the Greco-Roman household, the male had actually the power of life and death. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that's how, how intense it was and yeah. patriarchal is yeah. they could literally kill their slave, their wife, their kids, yeah. if it brought dishonor on the family name. Women didn't rank real high in this. Oh, extremely low. Yeah. <laughs> they, they thought of them almost on the same level as slaves and children. Yeah, so, but that's not what he's communicating. No, not, not necessarily. So before we kind of jump into this, um, let's just talk about there's two main views of the basically gender roles Yeah, is I guess what we have it. And that's a lot of what we interpret when we're reading these of how the relationship between a husband yeah. and a wife. Yeah. So the first one is complementarianism. So Ryan, how would you, how would you define that? So when you look at complementarianism, it's, it's kind of the understanding that God gave man and women two different roles and that they would complement each other on those roles. And they weren't necessarily equal in their roles, but they were interpreted differently. Mm -hmm. So they're still supporting of each other when done correctly and interpreted mm -hmm. within the lens of scripture, but they're not the same. Yeah. And so they're putting them as very two very different roles that complement each other. And that's a little bit different than where you and I typically interpret scripture. And this gets all over the place, mm -hmm. but what's what's the word theologically we use for this? Um, so that was just complementarianism. Now the other side is egalitarianism. So that's that men and women are created equal in role, equal in status, yeah. that um, they're mutual partners. Yeah. Um, so a lot, there's a couple different, I guess there's a spectrum on both of these views, yeah. complementarian and that. And if you get too far in the ditch on either side, you'll either get extreme yeah. feminism or extreme patriarchy on the other side. And I think it's important to say that if we start with the end in mind, the two of them really aren't that far off. They I aren't. mean, if, if truly you're just reading the scripture and saying, I'm going, as a man, I'm going to do what the scripture says here. And as a woman, I'm going to do what the scripture says here. In the end, it really looks the same. And so, you know, theologically, when you're trying to understand exactly what the scripture says, it's almost a mute point because mm -hmm. if you just read it and did it, you would be fine regardless of what you believed on either side of the fence. Yeah. So we don't want to necessarily get caught up here, but we are theologians. Yep. And so uh -huh. this is what we do. We rip it apart and dig into it and things like that. So I think to do this, what we're going to do is kind of work because both Matt and I kind of work more from an exegetical egalitarian viewpoint. And so I think we'll work that way because that's the language you and I speak. Yep. But then I'll come back and kind of give some of the other side of the fence just to mm -hmm. kind of be open to where you guys might fall on this. Yeah, so there's kind of different flavors within, I guess, egalitarianism. There's just like what we talked about, exegetical egalitarian, where we believe that actually the, the text does 
teach this, yeah. um, that you can get there from the Greek grammar. And we always look at kind of um, where things began in Eden. The ultimate goal point yeah. is to return to something that yes. looks like that. So we have Eden's how it started uh -huh. in the garden. You have Adam and Eve. Eve. You have Adam. We have Eve created, which uh -huh. is part. Part, yeah. And actually the Hebrew word there could be probably best interpreted as half. Yeah. John Walton actually argues for that, that when yeah. God put Adam into this deep sleep, that he literally cut Adam in half. We always think of it as a rib, mm -hmm. but it's actually a part, and yeah. part in Hebrew actually does mean half. Yeah, so it's, it's a much parts. better interpretation. And, yeah. then, and then we have all this time where... You know, we have spiritual beings that have, mm -hmm. you know, fallen, lured humanity mm -hmm. into this crazy downward yeah. spiral where we're destroying the earth and everything uh -huh. God made. But in the end, we come back to a very Eden-like look. Yeah. That's the end process is kind of to return mm -hmm. to the way that God made it originally. And in the end, it looks very similar. And yeah, and a lot of people see that kind of this patriarchal male um, authority thing was actually part of the broken relationships of the curse. Yeah. So Genesis 3.16, it's, we don't see this introduced, this male hierarchy until right. after the fall. So you have Adam and Eve, the first priests, and they seem to be sharing this priestly role mm -hmm. together. As, as equal and, and then this fallen being in the form of a snake shows up and lures them in, and mm -hmm. this curse happens. And when it happens, that seems to be when these roles get offset. Yep. So it seems like the way that we view roles as more of a hierarchy would mm -hmm. be as a result of the curse. And I would mm -hmm. take it back to... There's not much of an argument that throughout history men have been yeah. stronger or more powerful mm -hmm. than women dominating over them. And yep. we see that particularly in the Greco-Roman right. mindset, yep. as you described. And so that's where we would put it, that it's not really God's design that spun it that mm -hmm. way. It was the sinfulness, the evil, the downward yep. spiral of the earth yep. that sent it going or moving in that direction. And then yep. in the end, when things return to a more Eden-like form, it seems like we kind of see things finishing with this more equal viewpoint of men and women to the point that they're, we might not even be thinking at all in those terms of, of mm -hmm. differences. Yeah, so what we see here in these household codes is Paul is adapting what they already know, but actually flipping it on its head yeah. and setting basically it up for actually more equality than, yeah. than what, what it was in that, in that time. And again, this blew people away in that Oh yeah, time. this would have been extremely controversial. But at the same time, Paul is extremely like conscious about the church's image within yes. the culture because he sees these house churches and families as a mission field to reach out. Because in 1 Timothy 6.1, he talks about basically um, kind of order with slaves and masters so that basically our teachings won't be blasphemed. Right. And also in Titus, so that basically anybody won't be hostile toward us by the way that we behave in our yeah. homes. So you got to kind of fit into the culture a little bit so that you can um, basically approachable yeah. to, to the mission. So going back to these idea of egalitarianism, um, Matt and I kind of are more exegetical because we're just in the scripture for everything. That's mm -hmm. where we go. But there's also kind of a kingdom now idea that you and I kind of mm -hmm. take here, which is a little bit different. Explain that a little bit. So we've just talked about this already, but not yet thing. So yeah. what, what Jesus did on the cross is he brought the kingdom, God's kingdom into the present. So right. if we're living in this now, we should act as though the kingdom is a reality yes. amongst us. And if this is the end game, eventually, where we see it going back to this Eden thing, why not act like it today? Wow. That's the, what the scriptures is trying yeah. to tell us. We are of the world, but we're not, not supposed to be, be in, the, in world. the world. And yep. so we should live the way the scriptures are calling us to live, even though the rest of the world isn't doing that yep. very well. Cool. All right, so let's dig into this part, the household code. So he begins with the wives. So he 
basically says wives are supposed to submit to their husbands as is fitting to the Lord. So the first key here is that he is talking to wives and not all women. Right. So he's specifically talking about the husband-wife relationship and not all women being subjected to any man. Yep. So that's the first thing that we need to see. So it is fitting in the Lord. So um, basically it's saying that this this please it is pleasing to God. Um, yeah. But it means basically to be subject is not basically subjugation, but yeah. subordination. Yeah. So, now, in Greek, we kind of have this middle voice thing. Yeah, on. so what the middle voice means is that it's a it's an active choice of the woman to do this and not a forced action. Yeah. Voluntary. Voluntary. Yeah. Yep, so it's something that the woman would do, and we kind of see in the, we talk about Ephesians and Colossians being twin epistles, and actually Ephesians, basically 5.21 to 6.9, overlaps with all this material at the yep. end of Colossians 3. So if you read those, read, a, read them in parallel to one another because Paul expounds on what this means yep. in, in Ephesians. And it talks about mutually submitting to one another out of your love for Christ. And this is what I talked about earlier, the big context. We see this through a lot of Paul's writings. Mm-hmm. Philippians 2 is speaking very similar to this. And we could just rattle off several others. Yeah. But it's, mm-hmm. it's a central theme of his scripture. And again, very contrary to what the Greco-Roman culture of his day would have been yeah. thinking or moving towards. Yep. Yeah. All right. So if we we see that it's voluntary, and Paul never uses the word obey in the wife-husband relationship, and there was a word for that. There was he could a word. have used that if he yeah. wanted to, but he chose not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we turn over to Ephesians chapter five and look at the context of wives there it, it, and husbands, it uses mutual submission like we talked about in five twenty-one. But then it talks about the husband being the head of the wife. People get hung up hung up on that because head in our day and time means the boss. Yeah. It means authority. And I've seen some Bibles, you get like a study Bible per, mm-hmm. perhaps, and it like tries to explain this. And this is one of the areas where like, as an exegetical theologian, some of this stuff is horrible. Like mm-hmm. I read their, their interpretations. Yeah. And I think, where did they come up with that? So tell us a little bit about that. All right. So Paul uses the word kephale, which is head. If he meant authority, he would have used the word arche, yeah. which is the word for authority in, in Greek. Kephale doesn't anywhere really in Greco-Roman no. sources around this time. Later it became this, but this is a hundred years after Paul right. wrote this. Right. So if we take the early date for Paul, which we do, and then we have to put this word in its context, which didn't mean authority, yeah. it meant the literal thing on top of your neck yeah. and shoulders, the, the head. So. And even if you take the later date, you're only talking about 10 or 15 years difference. And even the this wording didn't come into play until like a long yeah. time later. Mm-hmm. So that's not even really a valid argument yeah. on that side of the fence. Yeah. So theologically, like to us, there's not really any way to take that interpretation. You mm-hmm. would be kind of way outside of the hermeneutic code or law to mm-hmm. take that meaning. Yeah, take it. a later meeting and apply it earlier. It doesn't right. work. It doesn't work. So it means kephale, head, literal head, this thing. Or the source. Yeah. So if you think of like the delta of a river, if you think look at the Nile River, the delta at the beginning where it, the Nile becomes yep. the Nile, it, that would be a kephale. Yep. So it has this idea of nourishment too, like uh-huh. it's feeding it. You have to yeah. think of that. Yeah. So if you're Paul is using here in Ephesians five a a metaphor of a body. Yeah. So head, I think, is what he actually means. This thing. Yeah. <laughs> so he's talking about. So he defines it for us. Here. So he says the husband is the head of the wife, as the Messiah is the head of the church, and then he defines what head means. Yeah. He, Jesus, is the savior of the body. Yes. So the husband, so we don't need to think of um, necessarily 
spiritual savior with the, the man, the head yeah. of the, the husband right. here. He's talk goes on to talk about nourishing and caring for um, the wife, and that's what he means in the context of savior. And we also take this back to Adam and Eve again. Mm -hmm. There's a direct correlation yeah. between them. Yeah, so the, the head here is like where you put nourishment in your head, your food, you put it in your mouth, and it takes care of the rest of the body. Yeah. Also, it pertains to life in the ancient Greco-Roman world. They thought that a man's sperm was contained in his head. <laughs> so <laughs> We get this a lot. So, so we, Matt and I talk about this a lot, but God's not seeking to fix their scientific yeah. understanding. Yeah. So he's just kind of going with it. Yeah. And so the heart is actually like, kind of yeah, down your here, your, your gut, you yeah. know? And so they kind of have this all mixed up, yet we're, we're just playing on it in a way that they understand. It spoke yeah. to their to their generation and what their thoughts were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what we see is we see head more as meaning savior or provider, yeah. the caring for person rather than authority. Yeah. So he's telling the husband, which is this is revolutionary, that the husband is actually supposed to care for and nourish right. the wife and be tender with her and crazy, crazy stuff. Because <laughs> um, a man in this time, they didn't marry for, for love. Right. And it says when we get down here that husbands are supposed to love their wives, which is in no Greco-Roman household code. No. Men didn't love their no. wives in this time. Uh -uh. They, they married basically to get connections with the wife's father and increase the family honor and have heirs to build out their family. So he's saying this maybe in a church service or something like that metaphorically uh -huh. basically and people and, and men are kind of like sitting there jaws with on the floor. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> so it's it's just just crazy. So um, so in Ephesians 5, when we look at husbands, it's telling to submit through self-giving love. Yeah. That's what he's saying. This is revolutionary, like we said, in the ancient world. They were, men didn't love, love women. They, they used women. Yeah. <laughs> so, and now it's almost saying the husband should act more like a woman. How does he go into that? Yeah. So he, he, we talked about Christ being the head, husband being the head, and then they tell the head to do the women stuff, yes. basically. It says that the husband should basically be washing the wife. I mean, this is spiritual language, yeah. but it's, if we look at the physical stuff, it's the stuff that women did. And even today, mm -hmm. we have a hard time with that. Yeah. As much as women equality rules, like a man doing the dishes just isn't a happy theme today or yeah. doing the laundry or something like that. So mm -hmm. it was relevant then and surprisingly, mm -hmm. it's still very relevant today. Yes, yeah, so it says washing, having no stain or wrinkle. Those are metaphors for clothes washing. Verse 29 in Ephesians 5 says to nourish, yep. which is used for providing food and taking care of. And Set the table. In Ephesians 6, 4, it specifically uses that same language to refer to taking care of the children. Yeah. And that was, again, the woman's yeah. job. Job, especially the young children there. Um, 29 to cherish, which literally means to keep, keep yeah. warm, and that was what also in the Greco-Roman culture the woman did. Now some people get up here, get hung up here, even though it says all these things about the woman, they get hung mm -hmm. up here as the head should be the man, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And there's something to realize here in that throughout the scripture there's a oneness between a man and a woman mm -hmm. based on God through yeah. marriage whether you get into calling that a sacrament or not there's this idea that the two become one flesh yeah. and that's a little bit about what it's playing on here yeah Paul's using this analogy as metaphor to basically say that husbands need to follow Christ by serving their wife's needs yeah just and when wife, yep, and wives need yeah. to serve take care of their husbands by doing the same it's a mutual relationship when you're both mutually in it out of your love for Christ Christ as the head and you guys on the same level serving together with each other and serving each other then that's the way a marriage relationship should work now it was hugely world-changing back then but it's mm -hmm. still kind of world-changing today we're yeah. having a lot of these same conversations yep. and it seems like men are still very hesitant to allow some of what they've traditionally had as their roles be given to mm -hmm. women yeah, Paul uses kind of this head-body relationship yeah. that it's the husband taking care of his wife as his own body, 
which was everybody looked out for themselves during this yeah. time. And it's kind of, they also see the reversal of the woman doing the same thing. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a beautiful analogy. It's, I think is. of the marriage relationship and how we should serve each other because that's what Christ did for us. And that's what he does for the church. Yeah. Now I want to go back a little bit just to the other side of this yeah. picture. So this is the way that we both view it. And again, we view it this way because we, are grounded in the scripture and we read what the scripture says Mm -hmm. and the culture it was written in and everything. And like we kind of explained in there, we have a hard time seeing it a different way. But if you do kind of want to give more merit to that complementarian view, there is an understanding in the Old Testament that some things God just kind of let go, like we alluded to early, Mm -hmm. but then some things he wants to correct. And we don't Mm -hmm. necessarily know in in the eyes of God why he lets some things go and other things he's going to step in and say, Mm -hmm. we need to correct this. And some things are built on throughout scripture. So we have an idea in the Old Testament. I mean, in the Old Testament, they had very few dots connected. They were just kind of out there doing what the prophets and the you know, everybody said. And then in the New Testament, these dots get connected. Mm -hmm. And that very well might be what's happening in the scripture. But in the Old Testament, we don't see women as being a big part of the leadership picture of what God is doing. Yeah, you have a couple little pictures of the Kalut of the prophet, who is a female, or Deborah the judge. Yeah. But you really don't see females in in leadership or even in um, the household. It was very patriarchal. And so they're they're not... Queens. Mm-hmm. We really don't have a book that we don't think we have a book that yeah. was written entirely by a woman. Little bits and pieces throughout mm-hmm. there you could argue and things like that. But what's crazy here is throughout the whole Old Testament, usually when the Israelites are doing something that's not really within God's realm, we see corrective measures through prophets mm-hmm. or through the scriptures or something mm-hmm. like that. In this particular case, it's almost like we never see any kind of course correction in the Old Testament. You'd be very hard-pressed to come up with even one history. In fact, there's even in Isaiah 3, there's even like a reference that God like used women to rule as kind a of like punishment. a punishment or a <laughs> yeah. correctional state. And like you get that and you go, oh, that doesn't sound good at all, you yeah. know? And so yet the New Testament, is he building on this or, but that's, that's kind of where part of where the complementarian views kind of come into this of saying, maybe there is a little bit of a hierarchy there, but then to us, it seems like that's not the case in the New Testament. Like it gets, yeah built on yeah um and that's why we really see that the already not yet kingdom stuff should almost you got to take the end at the end in the beginning the two yeah. the two bookmarks the stuff in between is leading up to the end yeah. so um but yeah it, it is we like to connect the dots between the old testament and the new testament and the only ways that you can do it with the egalitarian view is to connect the eden to the, the yes. beginning eden to the end eden. Yes. but we which we is do actually see that. what we do what with we everything, do with everything. In the Bible. It yeah, all hinges right on, there. Yep, on yeah. the beginning, Genesis 1 and 2 yeah. to end of Revelation. So now towards the end, he comes back to children, fathers. What yeah. about mothers? Does he speak to mothers in there? No, he just speaks about fathers. He kind of addressed it with, with the wife, if you look over in Ephesians 5. But if we're in Colossians 3, he talks about children. and um, How old are children? Uh, and technon. <laughs> technon, the... the the Greek word there that's translated in English as children just really means offspring. Yeah. Because really in the Greco-Roman culture, um, the father didn't have a whole lot to do with the kids up until like they're like eight or nine yeah. years old. And then they would start coming under their wing and learning a trade or doing yeah. something with the father um, if they were males. And females kind of got actually pushed to the side more. And we bring this back to allegiance again. This mm-hmm. allegiance is so tied yep. into this whole, whole mm-hmm. writing here. Yeah. So it says not to frustrate your kids or they're going to lose heart. 
They're often fathers in this day and age, especially because of the whole honor shame culture. We're hard on their kids. Yeah. And so we so, think of allegiance as as banging back into submission, submission oftentimes. Yep. But mm -hmm. when when the Bible uses this word in terms of allegiance, it's it's more of a it uses a more beautiful look. And in the same way, that's kind of what Paul is bringing into spectrum here. Yeah, being loyal, but it's pointing people, pointing your kids the way that you live to the gospel. Yeah. So you live this way and now bring your kids up in the same way mm -hmm. that you're living. And again, very counterculture. Yep, it is. Yeah. yeah. So then we get to slaves and masters. Yeah. So this is kind of goes along with our, our marriage thing. Cause if you look at like, why does it seem that Paul here is promoting slavery? Why doesn't he just outright say yeah. abolish it? Or even throughout the whole Bible. Uh -huh. I mean, it, you almost, why, why doesn't God at some point send a prophet to go, no, 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 we're not doing this. Anymore. Yeah. We all know today in age and slavery is bad. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and I mean, why can't we apply maybe that same principle to, to the marriage stuff we were yeah. talking about. Um, I think Paul is acting within his culture here. Yes. Um, if we had an uprising, if Paul said, hey, let's go storm storm the, the palace of Caesar and let's free all the slaves right. and this and that, let's have an uprising, the Christian movement would have been dead. <laughs> like the, the, the Romans wouldn't take it. Yeah. They would just kill them all, crucify them all. Right, right. So, and so Paul is like, all right, we're not gonna create an uprising through the way that we live this is going to work itself out yeah. and living like Christ in the kingdom now. And what's crazy is that we always want these things to happen really quick. Mm -hmm. I mean, Paul was thinking probably within his lifetime yeah. at this point. Yeah. And, you know, they thought Christ was coming back really, really mm -hmm. quick here. And now we're 2,000 years later. And really in terms of history, this slavery thing has really just gotten taken care of it really Re recently. recently. Yeah. yeah. And mm -hmm. so, so... At Paul's time, I think they're saying, yeah, let's work this out, but it doesn't get worked out for a long time. So it's mm -hmm. also a play on um, that we have to just trust what God is doing here. Yeah, we do see some seeds for it. Philemon, he, he asks Philemon to release an SMS in the book of Philemon. Yeah. Um, so, but, he, but it really isn't a call for all abolishing of slavery. He's only calling for an SMS to be released because he's a good ministry partner. He works with Paul. And one of us, our hermeneutics is you can't read anything into scripture. Sure. What we have is what we have. And a lot of people will use that for the abolition of all of slavery, but he's really calling for one guy to be released yeah. so that he can help him spread the gospel. Yeah. So we would like it to say mm -hmm. something, but you have to go with what the scripture actually says. Yep. So we kind of get to how are we supposed to work, Ryan? It talks about working for your masters as if it's to the Lord. Yeah. And we don't like this very much. We yeah. talk about church authority and mm -hmm. government authority and everything mm -hmm. else. And we, we kind of, in our American Westernized mindset, we have this idea that like, you know, we're going to work the way that God's telling us to work. And that might mean breaking rules or not working in authority mm -hmm. or submission. Mm -hmm. And in the, in the flip side, Paul's actually seeing almost the opposite of that. Yeah. He's talking to the slaves about basically whether their masters are looking or not to Work is because God is watching. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. put your all into it. And he actually uses a word that's similar to, to nephesh yeah. there in the Hebrew. We've Everything. called call it the work yeah. here. As you work for your earthly masters, work with all of your heart and soul. Yeah. Because and then he tells the masters to basically treat their their slaves with dignity and fairness, which was revolutionary. Also, yeah. there um, because they have a master also in heaven. Yeah. And. We often overlook here in the scripture that Paul is saying throughout whatever adversity you've been put in, where, mm -hmm. wherever you might be, whether it's of God or whether your situation is of God or not, you need to live in an honor allegiance relationship 
giving all of yourself, your, your heart, your mind, your soul, and all the actions that come out of there in a way that you are actually working specifically for God, even if the person you're under seems the most opposite from God at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, it all comes back to, to love. Christ loved us, gave himself for us. We're supposed to serve each other in the way that Christ served and gave his life. Very good. So that's chapter three. And we dive into four, which goes into workers next. Yep. And then we're if you join us um, for our class next Wednesday, we're also going to have about a good chunk of the class at the end for a question and answer. Yep. So Matt, thanks for the great journey you're leading us on. And if you guys have any questions, feel free to leave comments or uh, email your questions. And we'll try to get to those as the next part of the video series. May God bless you and keep you.